Father, I pray once again that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may have heard uh, the, the phrase that um, speaking of someone and saying, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That is, you know, something that, that people use to describe and to think of, talk about the fact that we really shouldn't think about eternal life, we shouldn't think about the new heaven and new earth, we shouldn't think about those things, because to do so is to basically abandon this world. And that has certainly happened from time to time throughout history, that people have been so enamored with the world to come that they give little thought and are almost not even present in the world in which we live. I don't think that started with recent generations. I think there is something of that idea in the back of Paul's mind as he brings to a conclusion chapter 15 of this letter to, to the Corinthians. He has been talking this whole time about the resurrection. He's been talking about how the resurrection is not just something ethereal, we're not just spirits that float around, but it's a bodily resurrection. And that if, if, human, if we're not raised bodily, then Christ is not raised bodily. And if Christ is not raised, then all that we have based our faith upon crumbles. And so now Paul comes to this point, and he's, after he has made his point for 56 verses about the truth of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection, he now comes to verse 57, and he says, therefore, now, here's what we do about it. And you almost get the sense in which Paul is saying, I said all these other things, and they're important, and they're vital, and they're the foundation, but here's my real point. What does all that have to do with how we live? That's the point. It's the essence of how we live. And everything that he's talked about comes back to this. And so you come to verse 57, 58, and he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. I've been pondering what Paul means by that. What does he mean, stand firm? You know, we, we often have think about that, that, you know, we think about just standing. I mean, this week we had some, you know, terrific winds this week, and I had the dog out a couple of times, and there were a few gusts of wind where I thought, it was about to blow me over. And I, I had to anchor my feet like this just to be able to stand up. And maybe you've had that experience. And I think there is something of that that Paul's describing. It, it reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about building houses on sand and on rock. If you went to Sunday school as a child, maybe you sang that song, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, you know. And I think that's what Paul's saying. We are called to be, to stand firm, to be immovable. But what about? I think he's saying all the things that I've written to you in this letter, 
all of the problems that you're wrestling with as a church, all the struggles, all the misunderstandings, you know what you've been taught. First words out of this 15th chapter. Stick with that. Stay there. Put down roots. Because there's all kind of wind that blows against us to move us and to change our thinking. Stand firm in the truth. Stand firm in the resurrection. Stand firm in what you've been taught. Anchor there. Because if you don't, you'll be like the house built on sand. And when the wind and the storms come, as they will, you will fall. But he also in the second half of this says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. I think Paul is saying, look, all this resurrection talk is really reminding you that we operate in a sphere that is greater and deeper and bigger than the sphere that we tend to think about just living in this world. The nature of the kingdom of God has different priorities than this world. It has a different foundation than this world. It has, it has different, different way of assessing things in this, than this world. He's saying, whatever you do for the kingdom, whatever you do for Christ, it's important. It is never useless. It is never worthless. It is never in vain. And that means if you are that it is every bit as important to, to figure out how, uh, being a, a leadership team that's figuring out the future of the church as it is taking your children to play in the park. It's every bit as important to, to lead a, a funeral as it is to work at the funeral luncheon. It's every bit as important to, to, to teach people about Christ and it's just as important to help people with the, the basic needs of life. It's important for us to be up here and to lead worship, but it's every bit as important to be up there making sure that it gets out and that things happen. And sometimes we want to categorize things in the kingdom. This is, we may say it's not unimportant, we just think of it as more important. And Paul is saying, that's the wrong way to look at it. Whatever you do for the Lord is connecting you with the, with the kingdom. And whatever you do for the kingdom is useful and important and valuable. Because we operate in this totally different sphere of how we judge success and how we judge worth and what's valuable to us. And Paul says, it all comes back to the resurrection. If Christ is raised, then that changes the whole game plan. It changes all of it. I think that's why he then goes on in chapter 16 to talk about generosity. He talks to them about, about their gifts. And he says, now about the collections for the Lord's people. And he, it feels like he just sort of shifted gears, right? And he was in, he was in first gear and he jumped right to fifth. But... But I think it makes sense. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of each week. Set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. There is something about generosity 
that, that connects us with the kingdom of Christ. If you know that the kingdom of Christ is real and true, then you don't have to hoard. You don't have to grasp and clutch. You don't have to think, how much can I amass? Because you never know what's going to happen. But instead, it creates the spirit of generosity because you know that God is always enough. That God supplies the needs of his people. There's something about the resurrection that changes the desires of God's people toward generosity and not just appearing to be generous, right? I mean, there is a difference between appearing to be generous and intending to be generous. I remember reading about a guy who, probably apocryphal story, but he, he was in church one Sunday, the offering plate came by, and he put in his dollar bill, but then realized later that he put in a 20 instead of a 1. And he was a little bit frustrated with himself because he really didn't want to put in a 20. And then he thought, oh wait, well at least I'll get credit for the 20. And he's almost heard the Holy Spirit say to him, no, no, you get credit for the 1 because that's what you intended to put in. There is something about that. I think there's truth in that, right? It's the intent of the heart the Scripture talks about. And there's something about engaging with the resurrection, knowing that that sphere of the kingdom is the ultimate way of life. It is the ultimate kingdom that changes our priorities and it changes our intent. And we can be free to give because we know that God supplies our needs. But generosity is not just about money. And we often think about it that, we, that's one reason we, you know, we like to talk about time, talent, and treasure. It's so much more than just money. And that sort of came home to me a few years ago when I read uh, N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. And in that book, among lots of things he talks about, there was a section of it that, that grabbed me. He talked about how there are some things that we do that are inherently eternal. And he says, for one thing, he says that the people who are engaged in the resurrection are, are not just generous about money, but generous about life. And that comes out in a, in a few ways. One of them is evangelism. The, and evangelism is really just the desire for people to know Christ and to be in relationship with Christ. And we often talk about, you know, some kind of big plan or some kind of big strategy. What we're really talking about is we want people who don't know Christ to have a relationship with Christ. That comes from a heart of, of experiencing Christ and saying, we believe that abundant life is in Christ and Christ alone. And it is such a glorious life, even though we face difficulties and hardships, Paul, as much as anybody, we realize that the way abundant life is in Christ. And we want our friends and we want people to know that and experience that. And that's really the heart of evangelism. Someone, I read something recently that said the first five disciples that came to Jesus, of the first five, four of them came to Jesus through other people. Only one of them, Philip, was actually initially contacted and spoken to by Jesus himself. 
And I think that sort of sets the tone for how people come to Christ. We come through each other. We come through people. And if we are engaged in the resurrection, if we believe that the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ is the ultimate kingdom, then we have this passion and this desire for people to know Christ. But it's not just knowing Christ so that they can eventually go to heaven. So like saving our souls, that's a part of it. But there's something more than that. There's something about wanting people to experience abundant life, not just then, but now as well. Ken Schenk in his book, Ken Schenk in his book, uh, Jesus the Mission, says to be an evangelist in the original sense was not focused on winning souls, but an evangelist is, is not primarily someone who tries to get people saved. An evangelist is a good news teller because the word gospel means good news. And the good news is that the king has arrived, is on the throne, and Jesus is the focus of the good news, not saving our skin. There is a big difference between saying, well, I'll, I'll pray some prayer for Jesus so that I can have eternal life, and saying, I want to know Christ and the fullness of life in Christ. And it often starts with praying a prayer. It often starts with some type of decision. But there is a passion about us. And that's why evangelism is not just about a moment in time. It's about a life. And really, it's hard to talk about evangelism without talking about discipleship at the same time. Because what we're really talking about is, is this journey with Christ. And a growing passion to know Christ and to be known by Christ and have life in Christ. And Jesus says in John 10 that he came to give abundant life. And he's not just talking about someday, he's talking about now too. It's not just that someday we're going to be with Christ, but the reality of the gospel is we pray every week, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and a part of answering that prayer is realizing that life now can be full and abundant in Christ. And we want that for ourselves, and we have a passionate desire of that for other people. That's why Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him so that now we go, and we preach the gospel, and we make disciples That's the goal, to help people know Christ. But there is also the idea of justice that's a part of the kingdom as well. Justice is the way God always intended the kingdom to operate. If evangelism is bringing people to the kingdom, justice is the nature and how the kingdom that we bring people to operates. I, I just chose a sampling of scriptures about justice from the Old and New Testament. It talks about Abraham will keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. In Leviticus, use honest scales and honest weights. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Judge people fairly. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Speaking of the Messiah, he says, he will reign on David's throne. 
and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. And then Jesus says, the beginning of his ministry, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom, the nature of the kingdom is justice. That things operate the way they're supposed to. When God gets to the end of creation, he looks at all that he has made and says it's very good. Why? Because it's all functioning exactly as it's supposed to. At the heart of justice really is value and worth. That what God has made is good. That every person God has made is good and valuable and worthwhile and significant. What happens when sin enters the world is that it skews all of that. It skews it so that the world becomes a place where people who have the most power are valuable and significant. And people without power are not. People who have the most wealth are significant. And people who are poor are not. People who have the most influence are significant. And people who have no influence are not. And what is created out of that is not a society of justice, but a society of injustice. There is a sense in which righteousness and justice are virtually synonymous. Because God's kingdom is about righteousness. And righteousness means things are right. And that's what justice is. And so we think about justice, we're talking about, we're talking about righteousness, the way God intended things to be in his kingdom for all people. And so that's why we pray each week about the persecuted church. That's why we pray and care about refugees who have no place like Jesus to lay their head. That's why immigration is important to us. That's why the unborn are important to us. That's why women, especially in many places of the world, their causes are important to us. And children, in general, are important to us. And the poor are important to us. And often, people of color who are, who are not treated fairly are important to us. All of these people who, that society often says are not valuable or not significant... Because we believe in the resurrection, because we believe in the kingdom of God, they are important to us. And we do what we can to bring justice for them. What we're really talking about is being advocates for people. The problem is that the nature of the injustice that we don't even realize sometimes is that sometimes when we talk about advocacy, our first mindset is at, to advocate for ourselves. But the gospel is calling us to advocate for people who cannot advocate for themselves. I think you go back to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, and he says, Think not about your own interests, but the interests of others. 
What do other people need? How do we help other people in this world? How do we create systems of justice in the world? It's the calling of the gospel. It is the context in which which the kingdom of Christ will exist. It did exist originally. And our calling is to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It all comes back to sin, right? And the thing about evangelism and justice is that both of them are important and both of them are addressing sin. Personal sin and systemic sin. Both are important. Both are, need to be addressed. And that's why the gospel calls us to forgiveness and to restorative righteousness. And we are concerned about both of these things. Unfortunately, the church has often, and we still are doing this, had this mindset that one is more important than the other one. You can talk to 100 people, and you're probably going to end up with 50 people saying this is most important, and 50 saying this is most important. I think that's because we have sort of this this divided mindset about the kingdom. It strikes me that we kind of think of evangelism and justice like we do oil and vinegar. You know, if you, oil and vinegar naturally do not come together, right? If you, if you ever use oil and vinegar dressing or something, you put them both in a jar and you just sit there and watch it and they separate, right? The only way to use them appropriately is to shake it. You shake it, you pour it, but if you let it sit very long, they separate again. It's just what they do. I think we often think of the kingdom like that, but I don't think that's the right picture. I think it's more like cake batter. Because you have dry ingredients and you have wet ingredients. You can tell I've been watching a lot of cooking shows, right? And, and I know these things because I'm an expert at it now. Um, and, you, you know, you have dry ingredients. You have flour. You have sugar. You have things like that and, and baking powder and things. But you also have milk and you have eggs and you have oil and, and you put those things together in a bowl. And the object is not to put them in a bowl so you can tell, always tell which is which. But the reality is once you mix them, you can't tell which is which. And they don't separate. They stay together. And you put them in a pan and you put it in the oven and you pull it out after a little while and you have a delicious cake. And I think that's, a, I think that's the picture of the kingdom about these things, is that they are so, they, they so blend together because we, we are just concerned, as God is, about the holistic nature of the kingdom. And yes, some of us may feel more of a calling to one thing or another, but, but the nature of the kingdom is this beautiful end, holistic nature that we're moving toward. And that's what brings, it comes to the third thing that Wright talks about, And it it surprised me when I read it. It may surprise you because he says, not only is the eternal nature of the kingdom about evangelism and justice, it's also about beauty. I was not ready for him to say that. So I just stepped back a little bit and think about that. Now, I know God loves beauty. You look at creation. So much of creation is extravagant. God creates far beyond what he needed to. And you, you look at creation and you see the, the varieties of, of roses and you see the varieties of animals and insects and all varieties of people. God creates extravagantly. 
the heart of creation is God loves beauty. When he gets to the end of each day of creating, he says, this is good. And the word that's, the Hebrew word there can also be translated beautiful. This is beautiful. God loves beauty. And, and the very, really, I think the essence of the nature of the kingdom really is beauty. In the new heaven and new earth, when you look at the end of Revelation, you get this image of beauty. Beautiful things, beautiful people. Because God is present. And where God is present, there is beauty. The evil one comes and there is destruction. And there's carnage. But where God, where God comes, there is beauty. And I've come to realize that the opposite of beauty is not ugly. The opposite of beauty is indifference. Because beauty is, but what the gospel calls us to is not just that there is beauty, but to engage in it and to see it and to recognize it. Every, every day when I turn on my computer, uh, a screen comes up from Microsoft and there is a, there's some kind of image of something from around the world. Some of it's nature, some of it's other things, but trying to, it's beautiful pictures. And, and they, they really want you to click on it and see more of it. And, and I think the intent is, they're saying, I want, we want to show you all the beauty in the world. And what's ironic is that I usually ignore it. Because I ignore God's beautiful creation because I have things to do for God. And often I don't even see the irony in that. And I think God is calling us to see that His kingdom, the essence of His kingdom is beauty. Not just what God creates, but just the intent of it. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God makes all things beautiful in His time. Which tells me that God's intent is that He wants to move toward beauty. And the day will come where everything will be encompassed by beauty. And I think part of our calling on earth is to be a presence of beauty. Here's the thing that I've realized is that when you boil down evangelism and justice, what we're really doing is creating for people something beautiful. We're bringing people to the beauty of who Jesus is and the beauty of what God has created them to be and the beauty of what God wants to transform all of us to be. I think what we want to, what God needs is telling us, what we are called to tell others, is that God looks at every one of us and says, they're beautiful. You just don't realize it yet. But I think there is something about beauty that ties all this together. Because at the heart of beauty is love. And the essence of the kingdom is love. It is the calling of the gospel to create this kind of world in which people see the beauty of who God is. I love what John Wesley used to say. He would say to people, do all the, can, all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can. 
to all the people you can as long as ever you can. It sort of makes me, when I think about that, it makes me think, if, if we just lived that in the spirit of the resurrection and the nature of the kingdom, we would create a world in which people would see the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. This really comes back to Jesus. It comes back to who he is. The focus is on Jesus. We care about evangelism. We care about justice. We care about beauty. But all of that only matters because of Jesus. Because Christ who has died is risen, ascended to the Father, and he is returning to set up his kingdom. That's why we come to this table. This is the table of Christ. This is the table of love. This is the table that draws us to him. And every time we eat and drink, we are proclaiming Christ is risen and Christ is returning. And every time we proclaim that, we are asking God to make us people of generosity. People who care about others. People who are at work in this world personally and systemically, and people who want to bring God's beautiful kingdom so people can see. You know, I mentioned last week that, that little childhood prayer. Um, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. To, to, I, I pray the Lord my soul to take. If I should die before I wake. Now I've lost it completely. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. You have to start those things from the beginning. I, I read a little story about a little boy who was kneeling by his bed, and that was his prayer every night. And one night when he prayed that, he, he got mixed up, and he said, uh, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord, oh, I've lost it again, now I lay me down to sleep. And he got to the second part, and he said, if I should wake before I die... And then he stopped and realized, wait, that's not going to rhyme. That wasn't right. And his dad said, it's okay. And he corrected himself and he prayed it. And when I read that, I thought to myself, there's something genius in that. Because maybe the great resurrection prayer is not if I should die before I wake. Maybe the great resurrection prayer is, Lord, help me to, help me to wake before I die. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy upon us. We thank you for the resurrection. And we thank you that it's about life now as well as the life to come. May we see that. Father, we ask today that you would pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup, that as we eat and drink, we would know the power of Christ in every part of our being, that we might be your people, your kingdom, through the grace of Christ Jesus. Amen.